Well, good morning and welcome to Redemption Church, Olds. Get logged into chat GPT here. I'm just joking, turn my ringer off. Everybody's talking about chat GPT. Fifth of all CEOs had it in their earnings calls. Google mentioned it 140 times at their developer conference and their market cap shot up over two or $80 billion the next day. But you know what, not even, not only God gets to laugh at our Towers of Babel, even we can laugh at them from time to time. And uh, here's the reason that we don't talk about it around here too much. Uh, I had the opportunity just 10 days ago to, ch to type this into chat GPT. <clears throat> Suppose I left five shirts to dry out in the sun and it took them five hours to dry completely. How long would it take to dry 30 shirts? You can put your own intelligence to work here to see if you can figure this out. Here's the response from ChatGPT. It's reasonable to assume that the drying time is directly proportional to the number of shirts being dried. So if it took five hours to dry five shirts, it would take six times longer to dry 30 shirts. Therefore, the time it would take to dry 30 shirts would be 30 hours. That's from 10 days ago when, of course, they've fixed that glaring error since but who knows how many other millions of wonderful responses like that haven't been fixed. As human civilization continues to erect bigger and better towers of Babel, sophisticated software, microchips, telescopes and even rocket ships that reach just a fraction of the distance into the universe around us, one thing is clear. Regardless of how high our towers of technology get, we are all still headed for judgment. And so we will dispense with artificial intelligence and turn instead to the living word of God, the author of intelligence itself. And as we do, it's important that you have God's word in front of you as we move through the passages today. We'll be flipping back from Jude um, into parts of the Old Testament. What you need to hear today is not going to be from me. It's going to be from God's word. And before we get into God's word, we do need to dismiss the kids. But I know they wanted to stick around for the chat GPT bit, right? Okay. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. One of the ushers will bring one to you. Corey's at the back with some Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, take the Bible that Corey gives you home for free. That's our gift to you. This morning, we are picking up in part two of our series in Jude. It's been quite some time since part one. And so by way of a quick refresher, Jude, the author, is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. This letter is written to Jewish Christians in and around 60 A.D., and finally, the thesis of the book is found in the second half of verse 3. Turn with me to Jude. Get all the way to Revelation. Go one book back. It's one book, no chapters, 24 verses. Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all, delivered to the saints. Jude had wanted to write about the one thing, our common salvation. But instead, because of certain false teachings that were creeping into the church, he found it necessary to write to the church, asking them to contend, to persevere, to stay on the narrow road. The Bible describes our time on earth as very much a road and a journey. Isaiah 35, 8 puts it this way, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. 
Luke 13 and Matthew 7 describe the narrowness and difficulty of our journey. In Luke 13, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Other passages like Hebrews 12 use the picture of a race, a race which is difficult to finish. There is considerable tension here in these passages that describe the limited and exclusive nature of God's kingdom. And our serious theme of the narrow road is intended to highlight Jude's focus on how easily we can be led astray and led off the path of obedience, particularly and specifically as a result of false teaching. And to remind us of how devastating are the consequences of doing so. In verses 5 through 10, we unpack three examples of false teaching that promote rebellion against God's direction, God's dominion, and God's design. And as we journey now to the middle section of the book, we find ourselves in what I would describe as the Valley of Jude. On its face, this is not a feel-good portion of Scripture, for it describes God's judgment both in history past and in the future. This passage and our message today are actually centered around that age-old stereotype of hellfire and brimstone. We've all seen the caricatures in Hollywood, movies of the preacher railing against the evils of sin and the consequential punishment of eternal damnation. And in large part, this is plainly and clearly what's written in our text today. But as we move through this text today and we unpack and explore the reality of God's judgment, I want us to become aware of something that we don't usually associate with judgment. I want us to recognize and embrace the absolute beauty and comfort and safety and security, the blessing that is found in God's righteous judgment. It might not be obvious, but it's there and we're going to find it. And when we're done, it's my hope that we're going to absolutely eat it up, that we're going to love and welcome God's judgment. We'll begin in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers and malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. <clears throat> Pray with me. Dear God, it's not lost to me, um, as I, an unworthy and undeserving sinner, stand here in the pulpit preaching against false teaching that I run the risk of committing the very sin this book in your word warns against. And I plead with you to be here right now, speak through me and in spite of me to deliver your truth to us all today. Superintend my thoughts, my motives, let them be your motives, and let my words be your words. Amen. <clears throat> well, some will try to deny the facts of history, and so it's important to highlight the documentary evidence. 
On February 7, 1909, the San Francisco Call published the following article, which reprinted a poem that was published itself just over a month earlier in the Il Telefono newspaper of Messina, Italy. The entire region of Messina, Italy had a reputation of rejecting God and being anti-religion, and the newspaper Il Telefono was particularly and brutally anti-God, focusing much of its efforts on tarnishing and diminishing the name of the God of the Bible, blaspheming him and denying his very existence. The poem in question was originally printed by Il Telefono on Christmas Day, 1908, and one stanza from that poem, translated into English, read, O my little kid, true man, true God, for the love of your cross, answer our voice. If you're really not a myth, crush us all under an earthquake. Don't let the formality of centuries-old grammar and sentence structure fool you. This was a callous and disgusting rant against God. And three days later, on December 28, 1908, at 5.20 a.m., what is still to this day the most destructive earthquake in Europe's history, struck the Strait of Messina, killing 80,000 people and utterly destroying Messina and the adjoining city. Many will argue to this day about the coincidence and or causation of these events, and regardless of where one lands on that issue of causation, what remains is a powerful picture of God's judgment. Bold and utter contempt for God, a blasphemous challenge against the one true God, and in turn, total annihilation, a devastating yet seemingly just response, people got exactly what they asked for. When we challenge God, we say, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And God allows our will to be done, and we suffer the consequences. Verse 11 opens with a powerful woe. <clears throat> woe to them. This is very much meant to get the reader's attention. The word woe implies a statement about the distress that will befall the subjects in this sentence. The subjects are, of course, the false teachers whom Judah is warning the church about, but this is not a threat or a curse. This is a plain statement of fact. A punishment or judgment awaits these people. Verse 11, I think, can best be described as the highway to hell. It's a song lyric that has become all too casual, if not amusing, and it is anything but. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. The language here builds, or rather it descends towards death, walked, abandoned, perished. Each one of these Old Testament stories could serve as a sermon in itself, but we'll not have that time. We will, however, ensure we stop long enough to understand the important principles behind these examples that Judah so carefully selected. Firstly, it's important to note that in contrast to the examples in verses 5 and 7 in Jude, which dealt with actions of groups of people, our examples now are singular in nature, specific individuals. The points being made here are specific and direct. More to the point, each of these individuals are teachers and leaders with a responsibility to preserve God's message in their words and conduct, and each one ends up failing to do just that. Let's analyze these three examples with the objective of drawing out meaningful application for each one of us, as each one of us has a role in leading and or teaching in some capacity. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain. First up is Cain. And Cain presents a picture of rejecting God's design. Turn me with me in your Bibles to Genesis 4. In February, Pastor John, as he always does, preached a powerful sermon on Genesis 4. Just trying to read the rest of John wrote this section here. So, um, and he called attention to the fact that Cain was the firstborn, a leader in his family, carrying the specific prominence of the first in a line of those who would defeat Satan. Genesis 4, verse 1. 
Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now Cain's typical claim to fame is his place in history as the first murderer recorded in Scripture. However, I don't think that's the reason Jude selects his example. There's no evidence that Jude was dealing with a rash of false teachers who were murdering people. No, instead, the key to understanding the point of the example of Cain comes in the verses <clears throat> that we see next. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain's failing was his desire to make his own rules. God has a design for his system of offering, and Cain rejects it. In fact, God has a direct conversation with Cain on this matter. God has no such conversation with Abel. God lays out very clearly to Cain, if you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, you will not. And it's as if Cain's response is a challenge to say, there is no one way, there are no rules I have to follow, and there are no consequences. But there are consequences. God has a design, he makes the rules, and Jude is calling attention to those who would reject God's design and reject God's rules. <clears throat> Cain's judgment is unyielding labor and homelessness, and given his context and history's timeline, it's a punishment that's difficult for him to bear. And God marks him so that he won't be killed, but will surely be left alive to suffer in separation from God. The application here, I think, is that God doesn't negotiate with sin, and we shouldn't either. I think it's a significant application for us as parents and family leaders. God lays out very clearly what the expectations are for offerings. Cain pushes back, and the consequences are swift and unrelenting. Parents, as we're teaching and training our children, we have one primary responsibility in which all parenting, if not the gospel <clears throat> itself, can be summarized. Teach your children to deny their evil hearts. I get it. Your kids are cute. Your kids are wonderful blessings from God that bring you immense joy. But that doesn't change the fact that my kids and your kids have evil, wicked little hearts, and they need to learn from the youngest age possible to deny their hearts. How often are we tempted to ignore, to dialogue, to debate, to convince and to negotiate with our children. And each time we do, we're reinforcing that their hearts have something to offer, that their hearts have something to contribute. It sounds harsh, but it's true. Their hearts and our hearts and my hearts have nothing to offer and nothing to contribute. It's only God's heart that has something to offer. And the sooner we learn and our children learn that we need to deny our hearts, the sooner we can get on with the obeying God and adhering to his design. <clears throat> the second part of, of verse 11 brings up our next example. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Next up is Balaam, and I think most people can identify that the Balaam story has something to do with a talking donkey. The story of Balaam is found in Numbers 22 to 24 with a conclusion in 31. Turn with me to Numbers 22.
Balaam is a sorcerer, uh, a pagan prophet, but we know that he is highly sought after for his effective blessings and curses, and we know that he is, was willing to accept and acknowledge that Yahweh was indeed powerful. We certainly won't have time to read the detailed account, but it is important that we understand the highlights. And let me be clear, the talking donkey is not the key to understanding Balaam's story. In fact, Jude gives us the key to understanding Balaam's example in his description. Back in Jude 11, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain. Balaam's life is an example of how greed can turn even those that appear to be doing what's right. Balaam's fame failing is over, being overcome by selfish greed. <clears throat> to quickly summarize the story, the Moabite king attempts to persuade Balaam to curse Israel, offering him large sums of money to do so. And while Balaam declares that he cannot and will not curse Israel, in obedience to God, he eventually indulges the request and meets with the Moabite king. At this point, Balaam has provided three opportunities to curse Israel, and each time in obedience to God, he does not. But the story does not end there. In the end, greed gets the better of him. He rejects God's direction by convincing the Midianites to seduce the Israelites. We find out that subsequent to these events, Balaam does indeed rebel against God's instructions and finds another angle with which to satisfy Moab's desire to defeat Israel. Balaam instructs Balak that if the Moabites and their allies, the Midianites, can entice Israel into worshiping their evil gods and participating in their wicked sexual sins and detestable sacrifices, they can bring Israel down from within. This aspect of the story is highlighted in Revelations 2.14. You don't have to turn there. Where it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some who there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now in Numbers 25, it unpacks this undoing as Israel is indeed seduced first by the sex, then the pagan rituals, and before long they have debased themselves to the point that God sends a plague that kills 24,000 people. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and then the, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill the, those of this men, who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel has st was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. <clears> the judgment here is death. These are troubling verses, and I trust at the end of this we'll be able to see the beauty in these verses. But this was death for many of the Israelites, but also for Balaam, who meets his end in Numbers 31, 7 to 8. <clears throat> Numbers 31, verse 7 is the conclusion of Balaam's life. They warred against Midian, this is the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian and the rest of their slain, Evi, Rechem, Zer, Hur, and Reba. 
the five kings of Midian, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. Israel defeats the Midianites, and in the process, they kill Balaam. Balaam was obedient in his outward actions, but his heart was ultimately controlled and motivated by greed. Jude's condemnation against the false teachers is relevant to each of us as well. We need to guard our hearts and our motives. In Numbers 22.20, the setup for the talking donkey segment, God asks Balaam to go to the Moabite king. And then two verses later, as Balaam obediently goes, God is angry. But God is not angry because he obeyed. That's okay. That's good. God is angry because of the motives of his heart. Balaam is only going out of greed and the promise of a payment. Balaam continues to obey God's command to bless Israel and not curse them. But in the end, he finds a loophole in order to accomplish his goal of cursing Israel and getting his payday. He instead advises Israel's enemies that they can tempt Israel into worshiping the Baals and in turn causing God to curse them. The easy target here is private jet preachers and the health and wealth gospel proclaimers who use the cover of God's word to line their own pockets. And that's relevant, and that's true. But the lesson here that should probe even farther into our own hearts is in what ways are you and I outwardly obedient to God above us, yet motivated from within our sinful heart? And finally, we come to Korah, the last part of verse 11, who does his part to uphold the saying that says, no one is completely useless, you can always serve as a bad example. Jude 11, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves to this, for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah's story is found in Numbers 16 and is one of rejecting God's ordained authority. Korah is a spiritual leader who is a Levitical priest that doesn't want to follow the leadership hierarchy that God has ordained. Turn with me to Numbers 16. <clears throat> Now Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear you, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers and sisters of sons of Levi with you, and you would seek the priesthood also, Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? <clears throat> and Moses sent the, to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. 
Korah has a penchant for twisting God's truth to reject God's authority. <clears throat> His failing is rejecting God's authority. He and his conspirators make three statements, twisting the first two to come to a false conclusion in the third. He says, number one, Moses was no better than anyone else. That's true. He says, number two, everyone in Israel has been chosen by God. That's also true. And then number three, Korah's followers didn't need to obey Moses. And that's false. Like all great lies, Korah's lies cloaked in truth. These men don't want to obey God, and they twist God's truths to support the lie they want to believe. In Numbers 16 15, Moses reacts. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Their penalty is going to be death. And not just death for Korah and his leaders, but all those attached to them. Listen here as we wrap the story in Numbers 22, 16, 22 through 35. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Kor and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Let the earth, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. God's judgment is swift. God's judgment is certain, and he certainly doesn't miss in removing the whole sin problem. It might be disturbing for us to read that this destruction befell not just those wicked leaders, but also their wives and their children. And we're not going to avoid that point. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Even the passages where the children and the little ones get swallowed up into the earth. And we'll return in a moment to deal with that. But first, let's turn our attention to the application. The lesson here is clear. Be aware of who you follow. Pay attention to what authors you read, what online content you consume, and what churches you attend. What preaching you sit under. Are you cognizant and aware of the foundations of their teaching, their faith statements, and their theology? The consequences can be grave. 
And so having gone through our three examples, let's return to deal with this disturbing image of God's judgment in Korah's story. But let's do so through the lens of a different passage. In fact, it can be a far more troubling passage, and it's actually the tail end of the Balaam story. We conveniently wrapped the Balaam story just a few verses short, so let's pick up in number 31, verse 9. Turn with me there. So this is after they've captured, defeated the Midianites, killed Balaam. And the people of Israel took captive the woman of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods, all their cities and the places where they lived, all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the plunder, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eliza the priest, and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Moses and Eliza the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp, and Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, who had come from service in the war. Moses said to them, Have you let all the women live? Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident at Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Likely one of the more troubling passages in the Old Testament with respect to the issues around Old Testament violence. We have God's prophet Moses, the literal voice of God, commanding that all the men and women of the Midianites be executed. And yet this is God's judgment. Well, context helps. Let me illustrate with a story. This story takes place in 2011, and in it a man is at home watching television with his wife and his grandchildren. He was late in the evening, and some intruders burst into his home and shot him in the head and killed him, shot his wife and injured her, all of this in front of the man's children and grandchildren. And you might think to yourself, there is nothing that could justify such a brutal murder in cold blood and in front of this man's family. But if you understood that the intruders were actually Navy SEAL Team 6, and the man who was killed was Osama bin Laden, you would certainly agree that not only was that killing justified, you may even argue that it was a blessing. So let's get some context for Numbers 31. Both the Midianites and the Moabites worship the Baals. We often read through scripture um, about Baal worship and pass the Baal name in the description of the high places and we don't fully comprehend the depth and the depravity of what took place there. Baal worship involved public sexual debauchery and the sexual debauchery was only the precursor to the eventual birth of a child, and then the human sacrifice of that child. Large bronze statues of Baal were surrounded by fire, heating the statue itself to a high temperature. The young infants, typically a firstborn, were placed into the heated arms of the statues and burned to death. The remains were collected and placed in urns, and then buried in a funerary. Modern excavations have discovered that these urns and burial grounds not only 
have discovered these urns and burial grounds, not only proving the existence of this wicked ritual, but uncovering its extent. One such funerary was over an acre and a half and had nine different levels of burials. There's more damning evidence and heartbreaking description to provide to give the full picture of this evil, but I trust we can stop here. The men and women of Midian were the ones involved in this exact worship of Baal. And it's clear that the woman played a critical role in the act of conceiving, birthing, and sacrificing these babies. There is zero evidence that any of this was done against their will. We can only guess how many young infants perished at their hands. And finally, virgins in that culture and that time would have been clearly identifiable by their clothing and appearance. And given the fact that they would not have been involved in sacrificing their children because they had none, it was both obvious and logical as to why they were spared. And to be clear, there's also no evidence to suggest they were then sexually exploited as a result. What a blessing God offered this part of the world in that day when he sent those evil and wicked men and women to their just and final end, and how many of the remaining Moabite generations, the sons and daughters of those virgins who would marry and have families, how many of their offspring were spared a torturous death because of this act of God's judgment. I hope and trust that we're beginning to see the beauty and blessing of God's judgment the power it has to thwart sin and suffering. And now that we've unpacked the rich lesson buried deep within each of these personal examples of false teachers and leaders and the consequences of judgment, let's follow along with Jude. Jude's packed a punch in these three quick examples, and now he expands his writing to paint a poetic picture of the hazards of false teaching. Turn with me to Jude 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves the waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruit trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude offers up a list of metaphors that illustrate false teaching and its hazards. Jude uses relevant examples from the first century to make this point. I suspect were this written today, he'd probably use a metaphor more familiar to us, like cancer, to drive home the dangers of false teaching and the need to take a radical approach to cutting it out of our lives. Let's unpack Jude's metaphors in their cultural context and examine the, hazard, ha the hazards of false teaching. Hidden reefs, hiding everywhere. Seafaring in an age before GPS, nautical charts, and other modern navigation equipment would have presented a far different risk profile in the first century. There was little choice but to navigate the seas for commerce, trade, and travel. However, the risk of a shipwreck was significant and the occurrence probably all too common. And most importantly, the outcomes would be devastating. All of one's possessions, wealth, if not one's life, lost in a single accident that could occur at almost any time. These false teachers present the same risk and danger. Be aware of who you follow they present the same risk and danger to their faith communities. B, selfish shepherds, the leadership litmus test. Shepherding was a well-understood profession in the first century, and so it is used throughout scripture to illustrate. Everyone would know that the role of a shepherd is to serve and protect the animals he is caring for. And so the image of a shepherd that is looking out for himself to the implied detriment or abandonment of his animals paints a striking picture in the mind of the reader. This picture serves as a litmus test to identify false teachers. Are the teachers and leaders in your faith community more concerned about shepherding you, or are they more concerned about themselves? God's word is implying that where we see leaders that care primarily for their image, their status, and their interests, 
these are all likely signs that what they teach is false. Similarly, where we see leaders that seek to prioritize their flocks, truly shepherding the, the sheep in their care, there we can trust that we will likely find sound teaching. Waterless clouds, doubly bad. Waterless clouds are the bad kind. They block the sun, they don't provide any rain, and often are accompanied by devastating winds that strip off topsoil or spread fire. In contrast to rain clouds, the devastation these clouds bring would have been all too familiar to an agrarian culture. This picture highlights how doubly bad these false teachers are. Not only do they lack the ability to offer support, at the very same time, they also spread turmoil. Fruit trees of zero value. Similarly, the barren, twice-dead uprooted trees are also losers on two separate fronts. Not only have they failed to produce fruit, but ripped out by their roots, lying dead on the ground, they now present an obstacle, if not a fire hazard. Again, a vivid warning here that false teachers and false teaching provide us nothing of value. One might argue that even though the teaching is bad, at least it provides content for the Bible study and fills airtime on Sunday morning. But the message here is that the destruction and havoc that false teaching wreaks far outweighs the benefit of simply having content. Wild waves or utter destruction. The wild waves speak of the relentless and destructive power of false teaching, casting up the mire and mud that are the shameful deeds of these teachers themselves. For us, the pictures of tsunami waves crashing into buildings, snuffing out lives, and churning up a sea of mud, filth, and debris is a picture that remains relevant even to this day. And this picture sets up for the final image as we again descend to the bottom. Wandering stars were lost for eternity. Long before the age of telescopes and the ability to identify and differentiate between celestial bodies, wandering stars was the name given to planets. To the unaided eye, these planets looked like stars. However, they did not move or behave in the same way as the rest of the stars in the sky. Because of this, these wandering stars were associated with false gods. And Jude makes the connection here that these false teachers are as lost as false gods, destined for eternal separation from the true God, lost into the abyss. And as we turn to our final point and our final selection of our passage, we come to a slight roadblock. Verses 14 to 16 represent a direct quote from the book of 1 Enoch, a book that is not in the biblical canon. Before we exegete these verses, let's deal with this issue. And in order to do that, let's begin with some facts. Very quickly, Enoch the person. Enoch himself was a person of history. His brief story is recorded in Genesis 5. The profound impact of his heritage is again referenced in the New Testament writing of the book of Hebrews. And based on this reference and others, including the book of Jude, it's clear that his, that his existence was well-known and well-respected amongst the Jewish community. Now Enoch the book. The book of Enoch was not written by Enoch. It was written around 250 BC, several thousands of years after Enoch died, or after Enoch left the earth. It is quite clear that the book of Enoch was not the inspired word of God. There is solid evidence that both first century Jews and Christians were operating with a closed Old Testament canon, making it abundantly clear that the book of Enoch was not part of the Old Testament canon. And furthermore, the phrase, as it is written, is used throughout the New Testament to introduce Old, Old Testament scriptures. And Jude does not use that phrase when quoting from 1 Enoch. Finally, the fact that Jude quotes this literature carries no more significance than any other reference to contemporary uninspired sources. As an example, a teacher today may cite examples from J.R.R. Tolkien's novels to illustrate a point, 
but that doesn't make the Lord of the Rings the inspired word of God. If anything, Jude is making the point of reminding the Jews that even their own writings speak of Christ's return and his ultimate judgment. And to that end, let's turn our attention to verses 14 and 16 themselves. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. In verse 11, we looked deep into the depravity of false teaching that finds its end in hell or total separation from God. In verses 12 to 13, we are provided vivid pictures of what false teaching and false teachers look like. And now in verses 14 to 15 and on into 16, we are pointed to the ultimate final judgment when Christ returns to judge the world. And this is where we are driving today, our third point, our hope in judgment. And our hope in judgment is Christ's second coming. The picture of Christ returning with a host of his angels is exactly consistent with what we find elsewhere in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. You don't have to turn there now, but Daniel 7.10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will, be, he will sit on his glorious throne. Revelation 19 and 20 capture the same event and God's final judgment in spectacular and vivid imagery. Turn there with me now. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him in white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In ancient Middle Eastern times, when a king rode to war, he rode a horse, a war horse. This is a clear picture of war and the final battle in which sin is defeated. In all of the human history leading up to this moment, every act of judgment, every punishment, every attempt at justice and restitution pales in comparison to what we witness in this vision of John. The wickedness of a fallen world that would not be stamped out, that would not go away, is finally gone as God just judges and eliminates our sin. Verse 16, Jude's concluding, concluding verse here in this section, highlights many of the themes he's already drawn our attention to. Greed, lust, and selfish ambition. But the word grumblers here is particularly important. The word used here is often used in the Old Testament to depict the Israelites grumbling against God. It suggests that the false teachers are directing their complaints against God's restrictions, against God's decision, and against God himself. And notice that dealing with sin means we have to deal with sinners. 
Sin isn't an abstract concept or attribute that we can separate and isolate. Sin emanates from and is the product of and is bound up in sinful hearts. Our sinful hearts. My sinful heart. Listen again as Jude continues to quote from Enoch. Verse 15, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. But God will deal with the ungodly. Just a page or two over in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And if everything ungodly is gone, then what are we left with? We are left with the absolute perfection of God himself, divinely ruling over his perfect creation exactly as it was always supposed to be. In Revelation 19, Jesus Christ rides in on his war horse, But this is not the first time he rides in. Just before Easter, Kyle preached on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is his entry during his first coming. Zechariah writes about Jesus Christ entering Jerusalem centuries before it happens in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice this time when he rides in, he doesn't ride a a horse. He rides a donkey. As with everything God does, the details matter and the symbolism is everywhere. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem during the Passover week, it's not an accident he's riding a donkey. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, when a king came in peace, he rode a donkey. And it's almost certainly no coincidence that the vast majority of donkeys carry a particular trait in their fur pattern that forms a distinct cross down their back and across their shoulders. You see, this time, Jesus is not coming to put an end to sin because that means putting an end to you and to me. No, instead, he's coming to pay for sin with his death on the cross. This same Jesus will one day ride in on a war horse in his final judgment. He'll rid the world of all the ungodliness and all the ungodly people. But on this day, he comes in peace to make the payment for our sin, to pay the penalty, our penalty, for his ultimate judgment. And as Roman comes to lead us in our closing song, in summarizing Jude, David Helm sums up the, the false teaching of Jude's day, and indeed our day, in this way. This passage clues us into the idea that these false teachers were circulating in their own church sermons that God is a God of love and not wrath, that God would never condemn anyone, that no person or behavior can really be called ungodly, 
that unconditional love must mean that God places no demands on his children, that entering into a relationship with Christ doesn't require any meaningful life change. And nothing could be further from the truth. Husbands, cut out sin. Are you twisting or ignoring parts of God's word so that you can do what you want to do? David struggled with lust, so what if I do? As we've seen, sexual sin is a powerfully dangerous sin with particularly destructive consequences. Parents, God is not going to indulge your children's sin, so you shouldn't either. Take your responsibility here seriously, as much hangs in the balance. All of us, what teachers are you reading and watching and learning from? Read and understand the faith statements of the churches you attend, the content you consume, and the authors you read. Since the moment of the fall, the Bible has never been surprised by God's judgment. In fact, it expects it. In fact, all of creation longs for God's judgment. The only surprise is God's grace. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you for this time today in your word. Thank you for the truths that you have revealed um, in this book of Jude. Um, help us to see the folly of rejecting your design, your direction, and your dominion. Help us to recognize the hazards in our own life and give us hope in your judgment that will ultimately restore your creation to the way that it's intended to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. She stands.